you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. One of the great lines that I think every church should um, embrace is that children are not the church of the future, they're the church of today. And having them as part of us is such a pleasure because we are able, by God's grace and with planning and intent, to be able to teach them things that will put them on a good stead for the rest of their lives. It's a pleasure to be engaged and to be able to be part of a church family that loves children and is seeking to nurture and support them and their families. And to do so not only here as as the church of which we are a part, but also to be able to do it in the places we've already seen that are the focus of the mission and ministry um, in Sri Lanka. This morning I'm going to speak to you on a topic that I have um, been assigned and I'm glad to undertake, and I want to be able to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and the first nine verses. I'm going to be reading this this morning from the New International Version. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the word of the Lord, and his people say to it, Amen, and thanks be to God for it. Father, I'm praying that as we reflect on your word this morning and consider who you are as not only the God of all grace, but the God of incredibly generous grace, that we would see in you that which we ourselves can follow after, that we would receive from you what it is you want us to possess, and then having received that, give out of the overflow of our hearts. We would pray that as Paul is instructing the Corinthians, your spirit would instruct us as a church family, that individually we would hear this and collectively we would agree and seek to practice those principles that honor you and will give us satisfaction as your partners in ministry. Be with us this day. Uh, Be our teacher, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.
the assignment that I've been given is really the title of this message, Your Money for God's Mission. Because all of the things that you just saw in that excellent report will not happen by themselves. And here's a great line to remember in missions. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. The reason they're not doing it is that it's costly. It's costly in time, it's costly in effort, and it's costly in resources. And that's why God's people are invited to be his partners in ministry here and everywhere that he plants and sends them. And that's our pleasure. And that's why I want to be able to talk to you about who God is and why it's reasonable for us to make an investment in missions given the resources that we have, even when they are in our own eyes, not all that we would want. We're going to see the example of that in this passage of Scripture and elsewhere in the Bible as I teach you on that theme, your money for God's missions. This morning, I, I want to speak to you, and I, I'm not at all embarrassed, or I don't find talking to you about money difficult, because the Scripture talks about money in so many different places. Now, if I was telling you that you needed to give me your money, that would be an awkward thing. But I want you to know not a penny of that. What I'm really interested in is engaging you in the scope of what God wants done in mission and in ministry. Uh, there was a pastor who was speaking on a topic like this, and the first thing he did is he said to the congregation, I'm not going to have you do it, but he said to the congregation, everybody stand up, and they all stood up. They were a congregation that was trained to listen to the leader. Then he said this, now I want you to reach forward and take the wallet out of the pants of the man in front of you. And I want you to give as you've always wanted to give. <laughs> Often, you, you see the humor in that is, when it doesn't cost as much, it's easy to give. But when it's challenging in circumstance and time to give, then we really sort of visit that and say, should I be doing this? Like, what is my motivation for this? And does God really expect and want me to do this? And I hope I can answer all of those questions within this passage and supplementing it elsewhere within the scriptures. Money and where to place it can be a very sensitive topic for some people. And people would actually say that's the last thing I want to hear about when I go to church. But here's what I want you to understand. When God has your heart, he has your wallet too. Really, he does. Because you realize that everything I am, because I was bought at a price belongs to him. Not only the power of my hand and the giftedness and my aptitude and my capacity and my opportunity, but all of me belongs to him. And I want to use that in a way that brings him glory. And I, why should I? Because rooted in this passage of scripture, you'll see that God spared no expense to redeem you for his kingdom. And then as members of the kingdom, he doesn't say, sit on the sidelines and wait until it's all done. He says, join me. Be my family. Participate with me in what it is I want to, to do in the wideness of this earth. It says within the scriptures in Luke chapter 6, this is, this is what Jesus says to his disciples, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, he says there's a principle here that if you sow, you're going to reap. If you give, God will not forget that. 
And I'm not saying you should give to get. That would be so selfish and a misuse of this text. This is not about gospel prosperity. This is about the principle of using what God has given you to honor him and to advance the kingdom that he's establishing through his only son, Jesus. One of the primary reasons God instructs you and I to give is that it follows his example that is demonstrated throughout the scripture about how generous he is. We don't necessarily say that about God, do, do we? You know, God, you are generous. We might say, God, you're great. God, you're holy. God, you're good. But we might not actually stop and pause and think, God, you're amazingly generous. You give way more than what I expect. And I'm just going to wander through the scripture with you and show you in a few places how it is that we can say that with certainty. Because God is the one who is deeply generous. Not only are we asked to give, but we're told within the scripture that we should give in a certain way. We should give hilariously. Rather than crying all the way to the bank, we should laugh all the way to the bank, not only when we take what it is to give to God, but as we're giving it because we have the pleasure and joy and satisfaction, and we realize everything came from him anyway. We're simply giving back what it is that we've received, and we're giving it to him in a way that he desires, and we're giving him in a way because we're his kids, and we believe in who he is and all that he's done. So this is the scripture. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful, and that word really means a hilarious giver. It doesn't mean we laugh at God or at the opportunity. It means we are so full of the joy of him, it spills over, and we don't find giving difficult. We find it joyous. Really joyous. I get to participate. Not that I have to participate. God hasn't sent a tax among his people saying, this is what you need to give me, and if you don't, you know what? I'm going to come after you. When he says those who sow sparingly means you don't understand the privilege and pleasure and opportunity I'm giving you. Therefore, I'm not going to be able to put you into the place of receiving the benefit back of what it is you're doing through your good work and your good resources. You're going to miss so much. You know, one of the amazing things that's going to happen to the team that goes to Sri Lanka is they're going to be teaching kids that otherwise would have no opportunity to hear the gospel. And they're going to be visiting with widows and probably feeding that group at one point. Uh, I found that so humbling when I went with Pastor Ronald and one of the teams. Because here was a group of widows from the village, Balathapati, that came together and I looked at all of these elderly folk and I saw my grandma and my great aunts, and aging parents, and some who maybe had no family because it wasn't convenient or their children had died in one of the calamities, and they were for all intents and purposes alone. And they had made sewing bags that Malkanti had helped with. And they put two saris in, one new and one gently used. And we fed them and let them have seconds and thirds and gave them treats. 
And when they received their bags, somehow I was given the privilege of giving some of these senior folks this small gift. And one went down to touch my feet. I was so overwhelmed. They were honoring us, and I thought, we just want you to live well. We want you to be comfortable. We want you to be clothed. We want you to feel free within your own community. I kept seeing all of these seniors in my own family and thought, how simple, how easy. But here I'm telling you, if I wasn't involved, I wouldn't have had the opportunity of seeing what a small investment does in the life of a person. It, it was amazing. It did all the right things it should in my heart. It softened me in all the right places. It allows me to stand in front of you and say, if you're not doing this, get a grip. <laughs> this is so great. You don't want to miss out on this. It pays such a reward. And when people say, why are you doing this? You know the answer? Because Jesus loved us. He's changed our lives. And we really want you to know about him. Because this is from him. We happen to be the agent. But apart from him, we wouldn't be here, right? We wouldn't be doing this. But because he's changed us, we are hilariously involved in joyful ministry. You see, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound to every good work. What is it saying He's the one that supplied it all. He'll keep fueling you so that you can keep investing for him. When we describe generosity in general and in God's character in particular, it's probably good for us to have a defin definition. What does it mean to be generous? And what does it look like when God is generous? Here's the definition. A willingness to give help or support, especially more than is usual or expected. Right? When someone is expecting just a token, maybe a little bread and water, and you give them lentils and porridge and meat and vegetables, they're going, what? You do more than what is anticipated and more than is expected and they're feasting a good summary for us is that God's generosity is easily witnessed in his grace grace is God's generosity to all of us through Christ but it's seen in his work and his works in the world is the concept of generosity Bible-based? And the answer, it certainly is on almost every page, I could say without exception. Direct and indirect references abound throughout the scripture to God's nature and his work. God's act of, in creation is generous. When you go in and see day by day by day by day, you begin to see that God isn't saying, oh, I think I'll make two birds and let them fly. These are the kind of birds he makes. He makes flocks of birds. And when he said, well, I think I'll make a, a few fish, it, it says that the, the waters were teeming with fish. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a fisherman's paradise, right? A, a fish on every cast. So much so that it is overwhelming for us. It says within the scriptures, God said, let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. You know, this time of year when we look up in the sky, this is what we see. 
We see birds in flocks migrating. We see birds gathering together. We see birds in their social environment. And we go, that's amazing. And what we need to say, God, you are so generous. You didn't make a few, you made the many. Secondly, I want to say that God's acts of blessing in the lives of his people are generous. Abraham asked God for an heir. God, couldn't you give me one heir? Couldn't you give me a son? I've got no one to leave all of this to. You've blessed me remarkably, but I want someone I can leave it to. That was his prayer. That was his great desire. And then it says in Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, that God came calling one day, called a theophany, a, a God appearing in human form, and he was chatting with Abraham in his tent, and he takes him outside, and this is what it says in Genesis 15. And he, God took him, Abraham, outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Ever tried to count the stars on a starry night when you can actually see them? When the glow isn't hidden by you know, what we would call light pollution, when you can see them clear on the top of a mountain away from a city, and you go, I don't have a hope of counting all those things. But that was the point. Because what does he go on? And he says, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Abraham, I'm going to do more than what you've asked. Do you see the generosity of God in that? I'm going to create a nation out of you, Abraham. Not just a son, not just a, uh, someone in your old age to look after you. I'm going to bless you and through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. And then it says, verse 6, then he believed the Lord. And God credited to him as righteousness. You believe I'm able to do what I promise, even if you haven't seen it yet. See how generous he is to Abraham and to us? Another example of God's generosity in action happens in the life of David, the warrior king. He wanted to build the temple, and so he called his friend, Nathan the prophet, and he said to him, I want to build the temple of God, and this is what I want to do. I want to amass the resources and start the project. And Nathan said, wow, I think God is going to be impressed with this. Let's do it, whatever's on your heart. And then, middle of the night, God came knocking and said, Nathan, before you speak for me, you really should consult with me. I mean, it's not exactly what he said, but I'm summarizing it. Nathan was pulled back. He said, look, David's not going to build the temple. He's a warrior king. He has blood on his hands. He established the nation. But I want a man of peace to build my temple. But I'm very impressed it was on his heart. So I want you to tell David, I'm going to establish his kingdom and make it permanent. There always will be one of his children sitting on that throne. And he was saying... Clearly, this was going to be the line from which Jesus would be born. A permanent king. Our savior. That's Jesus. And promise was given to David. So it says later in the passage in Chronicles 17 that David went in and he sits before the Lord and he says, Who am I? Like, what are you doing in my life? Is this the way that you normally treat people? And you know the answer? Yes. He's generous. He's remarkably kind. Is it a small thing in your eyes, God, that you've also spoken to your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations? Oh, Lord God, what more can I, David, say to you for honoring me? 
For your servant's sake, O Lord, is what's now on the, on the, on the wall. O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done this greatness in making all of these great things. There is none like you, O Lord. That's David responding to God being generous for him, giving him what he knows he doesn't deserve, extending that mercy through generations. There's a a third thing that God does is, is the generous acts of salvation are generous. So he's generous in creation, he's generous in his blessing, but he's remarkably generous in salvation to all of his people who are willing to receive it. Because he established the kingdom. He established this through the work of his only son, Jesus. And it's larger and greater as a kingdom than you and I can possibly imagine. But we're given a glimpse of it in Revelation chapter 7. And and the writer there, the, the friend of Jesus, John, one of his disciples when he was exiled. Pretty difficult situation on the island of Patmos. And he's probably in his 90s. Just think about that for a moment. I don't know about you, but I hope I'm someone's threat when I'm 90. And I'm viewed as so dangerous for the gospel to an empire that they have to lock me up on on an isolated island. Imagine that. Now, I don't know what his state of mind was. Maybe he was a little depressed. Would you be maybe a little depressed? A little discouraged, a little despondent, a little what's going on next? God, what are you doing? What is the plan? And he gives them the vision called that he wrote down the book of John's revelation, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says then in, in chapter 7, one parts of the vision, after this I looked and behold, now listen to these words, a great multitude that no one could number. Talk about this, the stars, can't number them, can't number the people in the kingdom. It's such a vast crowd. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in crowds where I've seen tens of thousands of people, and I usually want to get out of the crowd and sort of to the side and watch it rather than be mobbed on the inside of it. But some of you have been even larger crowds, hundreds of thousands of people, you've seen them. A crowd nobody could number. And this is what it goes on to say. From every nation, Sri Lankans, English, African, Loatian, Filipino, every nation, everyone, all there, right? Amazing. Then it says this, from all the tribes, all the peoples, all the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, what are they saying? With a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One day we'll be part of that, I think. Gathered in the presence of Christ from all time in faith to Jesus. But then this is what it says in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. That's the kingdom God is establishing through Jesus, of which we are a part. Generous. Not a few, not a number, not just us, beyond count. He's generous. Our God is supremely generous. He does not create or bless our lives or include us in a kingdom that is tiny. He blesses us extravagantly. He creates lavishly. The kingdom that he is forming stretches beyond count. 
He wants us to know that about him. It's his nature. With this background into the nature of who God is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, we're going to read this verse together. Let's read it in unison. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's you and me extravagantly bought at the price of his own son's life, right? Gave up riches and glory, living in unhindered communion, father, son, and spirit, to take on the role of being a servant and in that role to die on the cross so that our sins would be atoned for and we would be his forever family. Wow. Generous. He is generous. He is extravagant. There isn't a limit to his grace. Think about this. It's, it's not as if Pastor Ronald has to say, well, we've just about reached capacity here. You know, when we get to 125, sorry, 126, there isn't room for you. Imagine preaching that. Well, it might motivate the 124 to find the 125. No, I'm, I'm sort of poking fun at you. Do you see the ridiculousness nature of that? Jesus does not limit who his grace can be extravagantly poured on. We just want to say, God, thank you. That's true for me. Thank you that you've lavished that grace upon us as your people. So what we're focusing on today is to see how generous God is. But not only does God reveal to us his nature... He, he reveals to us his nature to fuel our response to him. Uh, this is who he is. This is what he's like. And when we read in the scripture that he first loved us, the reason is so that we can love him back. He is generous so that we too can respond in generosity back to him. What we're focusing on today as we read this part of Paul's letter to Corinth is that God is being generous towards us. Because you see, the mission God wants to involve us was never the idea of a few people. It wasn't just that Paul and Barnabas one day said, you know what, I think we should do something called mission. And people went, oh, yes, oh, that's a great idea, go for it. Now, they did say that, it's a great idea, go for it, because actually the Holy Spirit said, set these guys apart for me because I want to do some kingdom expansion. But it wasn't the idea of people, it was always the mission-mindedness and the gener generosity of God. And we're engaged in the same kind of mission and ministry now. And our experience of God's generosity fuels our or my response to be generous to others. Let me rephrase it this way. God wants nothing from you until he's given everything he has to you. And then he says... Invest it back. You see, often we think what we should do is something great for God. But God actually says to us, well, okay, it's not that, that you can't do that. I'm not sure that that will work in the line of your life as I see it stretched out. But let me tell you what I'd rather do. I want to give you my grace as just an abundant supply of loonies. And I want a dollar a day from you. Thank you very much. Live it out. Give it back. Invest back what it is that God has given you through his grace. 
God doesn't say, give it to me and then I'll give it back. He says, no, no, I want you to receive what you can never be worthy of. You can't earn and you don't deserve. And once you are my child and you know who I am and all that I've done for you, then I'm going to ask you to join me. Now, these are the words of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus. Give freely as you have received. Give freely as you have received. You see, God gives me his grace to experience his generosity. He wants me to taste it. He wants me to know it. He wants me to experience it. So when I'm involved in mission and ministry and sharing the gospel, I'm not doing it so that I can earn a reward from God and say, do you like me now? Do you like me better? I've, I've kind of done it. I brought somebody the gospel message. You're like, No, he's saying to us, join me within my mission and share what it is you've experienced. So you, do you see that a missionary's best preparation is to know who God is and what it is he's done for him. Because when you know what it is grace has done for you, you are then able to adequately share it with others because it's transformed your life. It's changed you. From the inside out, it's given you belonging. It's given you connection with God. It's given you a future. It's given you hope. It's given you a purpose. It's given you identity. It's given you adoption. It's given you freedom. It's canceled your debts. It's changed the trajectory of your life. Do you understand what the gospel does for you? And that's what we share. So how do we do this? Where do we see that God gives me the grace to experience it. Well, he gives us this, this example in Corinthians 8. He says, here's the Macedonian churches, and there were three cities at this point that had been, the gospel had been shared, and it had been very difficult for Paul and his team. He had gone to uh, Philippi, and, you know, it's the Philippian church. It's a beautiful letter he writes from prison to this group of people. They all know about what suffering is because there was big suffering that went on in the city when the gospel came to it. They were persecuted. Then they went to Thessalonica, then they went to Berea, these three churches, but they all had experienced a lot of opposition. But it had entered the gospel and it had transformed their lives. What shouldn't be missed is that God was at work and churches were started in each of these areas where it was difficult and challenging. So look, if we find it's a little challenging and difficult at times in Sri Lanka, welcome to the group. It's nothing new within the writing of Acts or in the New Testament. We don't go where it's easy. We go where we're sent. We go where God puts that desire upon our heart and gives us an opportunity to go. These few disciples described by Paul to the church in Corinth, in these verses he says there was these great tests of affliction, there was extreme poverty, and yet in the middle of that this was overwhelming joy that we know who Jesus is. And out of all of that, they chose to say, we can't be left behind. We've got to join this gift to Jerusalem. We know what it is to suffer, so we're going to help those who are already suffering. It says they gave out of what they knew they could afford to give, and some went even beyond it. Well, they weren't going to be left behind. They wanted to be part of the team. See, something very unusual is happening. They're not asking Paul to help them, given their circumstance. They're saying, Paul, wow, we know who God is. We understand who Jesus is. We know what he's done for us. Now because of that and our standing before God as his children, we've got to join you. Take this gift 
add it to what you're taking to Jerusalem. Remarkable, isn't it? When you think about it, why would a group of impoverished, persecuted Gentiles take a collection to help a group of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem they've never met? Because they're in the same family. Because they believe that God is their king. Because they believe that they can give what they have because God has invited them to do so and they don't want to miss an opportunity. And they give, and they give generously. So he says to this church in Corinth, and he's had some real trouble if you read the, the two books. They, they've really stood up against Paul. Uh, one of them said, man, you know, he writes with pretty strong words, but when he's here, he's kind of meek and timid. Wow, they, I mean, they insulted him. They challenged his authority. He had to stand up to them. And this was a church that was pretty much into anything that had razzle and dazzle. You know, if they could speak in tongues and, and show people how good they had it because God was on their side and gave them these gifts of utterance, they were first in line. But they were slow to put a gift together to help the church in Jerusalem because they had rationale and reasons not to do it. And so Paul says, can I tell you a story? Here are these poor Macedonian Christians to the north of you. Uh, by the way, whom none of you have bothered to reach. He doesn't say that, doesn't even inference it, that's me. So this self-absorbed church, he says to them, do you see how God's grace has entered their hearts and what they're doing? So if you see what they're doing, don't you think you could finish the task that you started so that when someone comes for the collection, you won't be embarrassed and we won't be embarrassed because we frankly bragged on you to everybody about how wonderful God has treated you and how blessed you are and how many advantages you are. Don't make all of that bragging be for nothing because it's really true. God has done all of these things for you. Now would you please join, won't you give? He doesn't seek to embarrass them, but he does want them to see the contrast between what they think they are and what God really wants from and for all of his people. He challenges them. And he says, he doesn't do what we expected. What does that mean? It means that they listened to the gospel, and the gospel was at work in them, and they weren't sort of trying to figure out how to live under this context of pressure and opposition and difficulty and poverty. Rather, they said, we're God's. We are his, all of us. All of what we have is his. Take what we're giving you. You see, it was different. He said, well, then they gave themselves to us as well, and they were following our leadership, but God owned them all, and these believers rightly think that his grace is what matters most. It has changed them radically from the outside in. So friends, when God has your heart, he does have your wallet. The question really is, are you willing to give him your wallet? Are you willing to consider yourself bought lock, stock, and barrel, meaning everything. Everything is redeemed by you, and all you have belongs to him. Will you gladly join him in what he's doing? So the natural question then becomes, 
Will you join him in his opportunity? Because you see, God is giving us an opportunity to join him and be generous, and it's called the Sri Lankan mission, love trust. This is really what God has meant in 2 Corinthians 8 when he says they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. Giving themselves to the apostolic team means that they want to join the team for the sake of the disciples in Jerusalem. God owns it all, all of them. So the natural question that this is leading to when God gives you an opportunity to be generous in mission and ministry, the obvious question is, are you willing to give to it? Are you willing to make a decision? And maybe the decision won't be made today, but maybe it's going to be a good conversation that you're going to have with your spouse or together as a family, or you're really going to have a look at what it is God's given you and decide what it is would be appropriate to give. Because God is not saying beggar yourself. He's not saying that you should give away food out of the mouths of your children or a benefit that, that they need to have from you. He's not saying abandon your familiar responsibility. He is saying determine on the basis of what you have received to give. That means you have to make the decision yourself won't be me telling you, I'm not looking over your shoulder. Actually, it's God who does that, right? He's the one who knows. He's the one from whom you can't hide anything. And you wouldn't want to. But the question is, are you willing to join what this church is doing in Sri Lanka to advance the gospel of Jesus in the lives of people you may never meet to be like your Father in heaven who's generous? Young adults, you who are in some early income years, perhaps you haven't seriously considered what it means to give to missions. Uh, maybe you haven't been challenged to think about that personally, so here's the challenge. Think about that. What would that mean? What, what would you give? Would you give a coffee a week? Would you give uh, one of the fast food meals you might like to eat? Would you give something else that is expendable, but you could move its trajectory around. It's really your choice. There are children who need sponsors, a building that needs to be completed. And being generous is logical for the Christian because he himself has experienced this amazing generosity of Jesus. You can't outgive him. You don't pay him. You're not doing it to make him love you more. He's extravagantly loved you on the crosses. He can't love you more, and he promises he won't love you less. So it's logical. And in praise and worship, we are saying, God, I, I'm so grateful that I can see your generosity. I can see it in creation. I can see it in blessing. I can see it in Christ to me as your disciple. And I know that you're not going to prevent every hardship in my life. You're not going to end every challenge of suffering or difficulty or oppression. But I can still seriously consider how to use what you've given me, my time, my talents, my resources to honor your kingdom. And that's what he's asking us to do. Because joining God requires careful thoughts, some planning, and then a decision. And what I'm really asking you to do is to consider these opportunities at hand and to do so so that you don't miss the chance of extending the kingdom, advancing the gospel, joining together. Because just like the 
Canadian Blood Bank writes, it's in you to give. It's in you. It's what he's done. Father, thank you for an opportunity to have a look at a church that was in trouble, that was under oppression, that had poverty issues within their, their, their disciples. And yet they realized it was an opportunity they couldn't miss. And based on your generosity to them, your willingness, though you were rich, to become poor, so that through that impoverishment, we might become your children and be made rich. Thank you for giving us the fuel to be generous. In Jesus' name, amen.